Thank you to Union Pacific for their generous support as a sponsor of the NHI Podcast Network. Tercera realidad, mi libertad. Mi tercera realidad no es vanidad. Un mundo mío es mi sueño. This is NHI Notables with Ernesto Nieto, recorded at the National Hispanic Institute in Maxwell, Texas. So I'm told that I always start, that's the format. So this is NHI Notables, and we're on the line with Dr. Joey, Dr. Joseph Viescas from El Paso. And Joey, nice to have you online, and it's always a pleasure to talk to you. As you well know, Julio's on the other on the other phone, and we're going to both be having a good time conversing with you back and forth. How are you doing? Oh, I'm great, Ernie. I'm just happy to be on. It's a, it's a real honor. Well, that's good to know. Just for the just for the people that listen to our podcast, give us a little background on your relationship to NHI going back to got their days, cathedral days, and just through the undergraduate and then eventually the PhD program. Sure. It actually started before cathedral. My sister Yvonne participated in the 1991 uh, Great Debate, Texas Great Debate, and when she came home after their championship victory. I was really intrigued, and I met you, uh, Ernie, that following fall uh, at UTEP, and you were, you know, encouraging the students to continue on, and I met Tita and, and uh, some other, you know, older NHI students uh, or alumni around that period of time, but I've been involved pretty much ever since. I took a break when I was in college, um, and then when, as you know, we reconnected in 2001, uh, right when I was starting my master's thesis, uh, I spent that spring reading in my truck at Maxwell uh, after meeting or reconnecting with a lot of folks at Loma Linda in 2001 that fall. And I spent the spring of 2002, you know, reading and wrapping up that thesis. And then I started arguing with you about a few things. And then that <laughs> led to some consulting. As always. And then from the consulting, that led to uh, one position, which uh, didn't work out so well. And then that led to more consulting and some volunteer work, which led to uh, being employed there for another year. And then after that year, in the spring of 2007, as of May 1st, I believe that year, um, I left the temple and then just started wandering <laughs> the earth. So... <clears throat> that's that's kind of the 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 lead up to the last ten years, and since then we've been uh, connected to each other as a volunteer member here in El Paso with the Great Debate uh, students and some of the other NHI initiatives out here, and um, and then I joined the board thanks to your invitation. I think that was almost two years ago, uh, and then I just try to help out in everything I can, and just to stay part of a you know part of the institute and to visit as frequently as, as it's possible. So well, just you know, to I give still you, feel very connected. Yeah, just to give you an idea of how fast time goes, <clears throat> the other day we were doing a, a um, weekend training certification program for education directors. And in that group, there was only one person who was part of NHI in the previous century. And uh, time flies from the 80s to the 90s mm -hmm. now, 2000 and beyond. <laughs> and uh, yeah. it, it was kind of strange realizing how many years have gone by, 39 to be exact, on July 20th. I wanted to start out with a question that maybe you'll find hopefully humorous and hopefully also insightful. 
when I met okay. you, you were Mr. Academia. What? Oh, you mean when we reconnected in the 21st century? Yeah, <laughs> I definitely was not that in 1990, in the 90s at all. <laughs> you had gone yeah. to Wesley and then you were at UT and communications, the PhD candidate mm -hmm. and so forth. Yeah. yeah. What were, what and, were some uh, of the things that changed your thinking from where you were headed to where you are today? Bumping into you. I had been very, very confident that I had developed a new way of looking at things that was appropriate and calibrated and modern and new. Uh, and there was a lot of hubris in, uh, in that belief system. And you kind of called me out on it uh, in the office one day and at a dinner party at your old house. And it just turned into a need to continue this discussion with you. And it all began with a discussion about whether Latinos in the United States were a community uh, or, as I argued, they were just a collective captured within a system of categorization and were relatively a disparate population. And we talked about that early, early on, Ernie, and, and you caused me to really reevaluate who I thought this population was. And then you literally took me by the hand and dragged me uh, to Houston, to all over Austin, to the Rio Grande Valley. Uh, and you showed me firsthand all the nuances that were in proximity to us. And then you gave me even an opportunity to talk to a lot of higher education and public officials or, uh, or public office holders about what we were seeing and what we were recommending. And I got to you know tell you, Ernie, that you advanced my uh, my ability to talk about these things beyond an academic level by putting me in the middle of it all. I don't know why you would do that <clears throat> with such a young person uh, and believe that something constructive was going uh, going to come out of it, but you told me that the thing that I brought to NHI, and I remember this very clearly, uh, it was like you were telling me, you were Professor X and you were telling me what my mutant ability was um, and how to harness it. You said uh, my strengths were in synthesis. Yes. And and I didn't appreciate it uh, as much as I do now, but at the time, I think we were, when we got really connected to each other in 2002, that's what was needed, uh, a kind of an aggregation and a reconsideration of what have we learned, what is changing from what we can observe, and then what are these, these things that we can anticipate about the future? And then that led to the Perfect Storm uh, series of presentations that we did all over Texas. I want no. you to uh, and that's elaborate. Kind of how it started. In NHI, as as we all know, there are all these different eras or almost mythologies that exist, like the Triangle, uh, the, the <laughs> yeah. War, yeah. CEB, yeah. and then one, high ability one, Latino youth. Yeah, Hallie, you know, and so the then two percent, yeah. the two percent. But there was this report that you definitely had a heavy hand in. And a lot of folks really took and ran with it. I know our former colleague Hector in particular. I mean, he he knew that in the inside and out of that report. What was mm -hmm. the perfect storm? Because even in today's, a lot of the, okay, a well, lot of the kids out there still and, and, mythologize yeah, this. Yeah, the for, the, for storm. the youngins who we were theorizing about, um, who, they were all, okay, so to put this into perspective, um, we were all a bunch of young 20-somethings trying to make sense of what we'd observed in our high school and, and college and graduate years, graduate studies years and so forth. But it was quite the team. So this is what's important to also remember the context and how we developed this. Uh, Ernie was talking about a term called social forces. And 
I felt, and oftentimes I really do see a lot of parallels in other concepts that we, we apply within NHI, but we, we changed the nomenclature over time. But at the time, we were talking about social forces, if you remember Julio. And uh, we were talking about how there's a lot of assumptions and a lot of powerful social shifts that are all colliding. And since um, all I generally bring to the table are bad movie references, I think the perfect storm, the name, actually is uh, tied more to the time period where a very bad movie called The Perfect Storm <laughs> uh, was popular with Marky Mark and George Clooney. And so we used the, we borrowed it because we saw these major social forces come almost like swirling, uh, you know, tornadoes or really, really powerful, influential social factors, at least, that were colliding. There were some that were more economics, there were some that were more generational, and then there was a large discussion about faulty assumptions about young people within the Latino community. And if, if you remember that period of time well, uh, there was an employee that we worked with who I'm sure is still doing wonderful things, but it was Misty Tavares, who um, was able to visualize what we were talking about. I tend to present numbers and, uh, and what Nick Lopez would call a bunch of 25-cent words, but Misty was very gifted enough to, to visualize graphically um, the outcomes of what happens to this massive, emerging, growing population of Latino students throughout the country and heavily in Texas uh, and what were their success rates during high school, after high school, in community college, in four-year public institutions, in selected colleges and universities, and so forth. And what we were pointing out, what the main storm was that this pipeline that we fought for uh, in the civil rights era, right before NHI was established in the 70s, collectively this community in, in the United States fought for policy changes and inclusion, that ultimately produced a great expectation and definitely highlighted a lot of potential of this population, but wasn't executing uh, uh, outcomes properly. So as you saw in the year 2000, a population of Latinos being classified uh, as the largest uh, group, uh, you know, even overshadowing the African-American population of the year 2000, as we were getting closer to 2010, we were noticing that this is very lopsided. Um, we talked about it as like um, a, a really gargantuan population that had a very limited intelligentsia. And the intelligentsia that was supposed to be much more magnified by the school systems was not producing uh, very effective numbers of, of, of degree holders within this population. And then when you look closely at the high ability students who were getting these degrees, they were the least capable of interfacing with this massive Latino population. And so when we would talk about just that one aspect of the next generation of Latinos not being able to operate as a leadership base, then we started talking about the, the assumptions of the quote-unquote high-ability Latino youth population. Now you magnify those with uh, the other social storms that we were concerned about, mainly things tied to what happens when the baby boomers retire. You know, where does the new tax base come from? Where does the new innovators, uh, innovative population and, and so forth? What, when will they engage this population? When will they expand its capabilities? And when will they exert themselves as leaders in any number of sectors? And what these presentations ended up producing was a lot of confusion, frustration, sadness, uh, and I remember one or two people in the audience occasionally like really getting uncomfortable with the implications that despite all of this progress, this progress wasn't going to lead to a leadership base that could advance this national population to 
uh, to the next level. Yeah, and that we, was we what, were, 15 we years were, ago, 10 years ago. Yeah. We were merely so, we were merely drawing a conclusion that size alone was a positive factor. And and right. and the, the, the sleeping giant. Go ahead. Concept. Yeah, the the belief that with so many students or with so many voters or with so much potential numerically that change was going to come, we were probably the only organization in that period uh, of American history trying to point out the dangers of 2016, 17, and 18 a decade in advance and trying to advocate for at least a discussion about what we can do to address the collision of these of these storms or social forces. It was almost, I, re I remember almost that we also were cutting through this notion that I think everyone had started to accept that if you had a degree or a degree from a competitive school that equated leadership, that that would automatically translate into effective community. Leadership. Ability, awareness, desire to even interface. And I think what was so hard to learn from Ernie right after Loma Linda in 2002 uh, was that, sorry, that's the last school bell of the day. Uh, this semester is now over. Uh, the the realization was that we weren't ready and we were, we had a lot of things to question about ourselves. And even we had a lot of questioning to do regarding the training we received from the Institute in the 1990s, which was preparing us for excellence in higher ed. Um, so I felt like we were having a, a double challenge, at least at that period of time, in terms of advancing these presentations and discussions, but at the same time trying to understand how the Institute needed to recalibrate the leadership training for the next generation. And then yeah. that's when we started talking about the disconnect. Exactly. Exactly. Of I, other I, programming I, issues. I wanted and to I spend... And I think that also was a, a, a break in terms of a new population that came in to NHI around that period yeah. of time. I wanted, to, I wanted to spend a little time on the disconnect. And, it, and oftentimes we would say disconnect in the 2% almost simultaneously. That here we had a 2% that were going to go, of students, young people, who were going to go on to top colleges and universities, but with a mindset of careerism that was going yeah. to draw them away from the Latino community and create a segmented society or a segmented relationship that these young people, despite their degrees and despite their life experiences, their eyes were set on a different goal other than to be right. leaders in the Latino community. We used to talk a lot about the balkanization. That was a big buzzword around yeah. these reports. Yeah, that was the term of the time. Uh, yeah, we were going to have this gargantuan body and a really limited uh, you know, emerging leadership base that was going to be able to apply it. Now, uh, most of the people of that period of time, including our generation, who was also not particularly interested and having an asset view of the, uh, the the U.S. Latino community or the global Latino community. Yeah, let, so, let me ask and, this question here yeah. because I think sure. it's important to continue amplifying on the thought. The, the idea that's going on right now, I was looking at a report from the Pew Foundation where a very small percentage of Americans control the vast majority of wealth in this country. And uh, I think it was 9% control the overwhelming wealth in this country. And when you put out the numbers, Latinos 
represent maybe 2.4% of the overall equation of the of that population. I think the African American at 1.7, and then Asians and other 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 particular groups of people, the remainder meaning even less. So I think that it comes to bear that what we may be seeking is it unattainable, Joey? Are, are we steering our young people in the wrong way? Are we in terms of in terms of our Latino community? Are degrees the only rewards and the only really milestones that are left in our lives? I, I, you know, these are these are tough questions that we were struggling with then, and I think we still struggle with them uh, at every gathering or every coffee that we we share. You know, I think my twenty-something-year-old eyes. You know, when I was twenty-seven or twenty-eight, and we first started these arguments, they were all very passionate. And now that I'm 40 uh, and a dad and, and you know, responsible for the development of young people in a very different way, you know, I, I have a different uh, perspective. I still think we struggle uh, with trying to understand the collision, or I think I described it as the confluence of these social influences. Um, but what I think we have uh, nowadays is a greater capability to work with the, the next generation of our alumni and our trainers and our active participants and their parents and so forth and, and continuing this dialogue. Um, all of this was supposed to just be a conversation. I don't think we positioned ourselves as having answers. I feel like we were causing attention to uh, these issues that other people were never going to talk about in politics or in economic development or anything else, but we were talking about um, in much more detail. And, what we still have to do is advance that conversation, that critical dialogue, and, and ask our new members, uh, what is it that they perceive as, as being, you know, the, uh, relevant to, to this larger discussion, and where is it going 10, 15 years from now? Well, one of I, the... I think the, that's, that's the lab. That's the laboratory that is NHI, and I think we have our own answers or at least solutions, recommendations that we should, should distill from our young people. Yeah, I and think so that, that's what we started then, and I think we're still doing it. Yeah, I think that one of the things uh, I can hear a guy, a friend of mine, Manuel Zuniga, and even Gloria De Leon, my wife, still talk about the doom and gloom that came out of that dialogue. And I don't <laughs> think we, we were so much. I don't think we were so much concerned about the doom and gloom. One of the predictions that was made back then is that over sixty-five uh -huh. percent of all Latinos in undergraduate studies would be in community colleges, as you recall. And, yep. and that's where we're at right now, if not a larger percentage. And my conclusion yep. we, sometimes, and I wanted to get your opinion on this. My conclusion at times is that people in power and in control look at Latinos simply as a commodity and as a consumer base and as a work class and that the intent behind our future or what our future ought to be about is to be satisfied with merely providing the work service for the wealthy. What would be your view on that? Uh, you and I attended an Austin Independent School District board meeting. You and I specifically had a discussion after the controversial superintendent that was involved at that period of time had to step down. 
but a long-term colleague of yours talked about the dysfunctions in AISD in, gen- in, in particular, as well as you know across Texas and, and other parts of the country, as as being uh, dysfunctional by design, and that there was not just a, a, a clear awareness that education was intended to produce a workforce. Um, you know, capable of interfacing with the emerging economy of their respective regions, but that only a, a certain portion of students or maybe certain region regions within a district were intended to become those highway joiners, and the rest were supposed to figure it out um, on their own without, you know, the, the right educational credential or, or the right economic footing or even the awareness of how to navigate this all. And that, that due to the racist histories of our respective uh, or the origins of our communities and everything from housing covenants and restrictions and so forth, that the legacy was that in education, it tends to be the case uh, in the communities where NHL is very present, that there was a second-class citizenship uh, to these students that still continued in the 21st century, and that the, expect- uh, the expectations that underperformance were going to happen uh, was something to be uh, a totally acceptable level uh, or acceptable, and that mo- modest improvements uh, were were you know the only reward we needed to prioritize, and so what I what I've taken from that over the years is that when it comes to community college, uh, when we were looking at the trends, the discussion about community college was that two year programs tended to take uh, over a larger period of time. The success rate was still closer to twenty percent, uh, and I still think that number is relatively the case for Latinos all these years later. Uh, but the real finding, and one of the things we were trying to, to really understand was that more rigorous programming uh, at selective schools led to greater degree completion rates uh, than less selective programming in, in, in public school and in, in public universities in particular. So I think what we were trying to say was that whether you started in a dual enrollment program or you got your start back in community college or wherever it was that what Latinos needed to seek out, or at least Latino families needed to seek out, was a rigorous a challenging educational program, not something that had low expectations of them. And the greater the rigor, the greater the success. And if there was scaffolding, which is the term we used at the time, that nonprofit organizations and community groups and leaders and even faith-based groups could provide to develop the capabilities of these students, not only would they have the degrees, they would have the skills to link economies, people, new generations and advance other aspects of, of these regions to be able to grow and serve and harness the, the true potential of this electorate, residential population, and workforce. I wanted to move you towards politics for a moment and, and, and really get uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> okay. Because I know you've, you've been involved, you've stayed involved, and you've had a voice in it, yeah. both good and bad. Yeah. And it deals with ultimately the kinds of leaders we need to be more thought leaders than simply political leaders and people who can get underneath the the complexity of human issues rather than simply take sides on the basis of ideology and i hope and maybe not that that era is is coming to an end that ideology does not solve problems the ability to critically analyze our human, our human concerns and our human issues and the conditions under which we operate is, is what the requirement of the new so-called public leaders ought to be. But I want to start right out and name two people. The sure. Latino candidate for governor 
and Lupe, the, Valdez, Lupe, and then the Latino mm-hmm. candidate for U.S. Senate. Can we do better than that, or, or, or I'm talking about Beto O'Rourke now? Well, he's a well. That's not exactly a Latino candidate. He's a, a candidate from a predominantly Latino community. I understand, and that's really why I said it that yeah. way. <laughs> okay. Because I use the name Beto. Uh, so I got the look from Julio. Are you sure you're right in what you're saying? I want. Is that the best the Democrats can do right now at this juncture, in your view? And is that going to be enough? to cause change in the state of Texas? Uh, well, you know what? On a partisan level, I mean, we are at a crossroads in Texas where maybe, uh, you know, we're going to see this great upset by a local El Pasoan who, you know, came out of El Paso High School, served uh, on city council, entered into the U.S. House of Representatives, uh, won the electorate over by, you know, uh, ending the incumbent's um, uh, long-standing tenure within the House of Representatives. Uh, you know, Beverly O'Rourke is an extraordinary El Paso leader who is committed to both sides of the border, but I'm not sure if the rest of Texas is ready to recognize what he brings to the table and what his border perspective means and what his fluency in Spanish implies and what his concerns about El Paso's capabilities uh, can lead towards providing recommendations or solutions for the rest of Texas or the, the rest of the country. Uh, on that election, we got to wait and see. Uh, when it comes to the, gov- the gubernatorial election, um, you know, I'm, I'm very happy to see a Latina candidate yes. uh, run for that position. Uh, El Paso has also produced, um, you know, a, a Latina candidate, uh, you know, in the U.S. House of Representatives. But just because one is Latino uh, or Latina or has a has a connection uh, to a, to whichever region or a culture or ethnicity. I, I think what we have to really see is whether or not there is that that common ground with a very complex population and that their policy stances are, are very evolved and are not, you know, monolithic and, and basic and traditional. That I really have been frustrated, at least from the leaders coming out of the El Paso region, for not advancing new recommendations to address Latino issues uh, beyond the predictable uh, campaign positions. And for example, prior to uh, the Democratic primary for both of these candidates coming from El Paso, there wasn't a leadership function that they took on amongst Latino leaders inside and outside of politics within a community fabric level, a layer to advocate across the board for, say, students like that are caught up in, in, a, in a DACA situation. And so my, my question to any of these, these folks in Texas, who I do respect for their service and I do respect for their commitment, is how evolved is their stance and how public is their stance on a range of issues uh, impacting this population, not only of their constituents, but of the future of this country. And if people from the border or people from predominantly Latino regions can't speak about this, then, yeah, we should be able to question what is their true uh, you know, interpretation of the potential of this population. And what I'm still wondering about is what is the gubernatorial uh, stance on the potential of the predominantly Latino student population of Texas? Yeah, I wanted and to know, I, I wanted yeah. to know what's fresh. What's fresh from these two candidates? What, what inspires 
and that it's going to cross ethnicities and socioeconomic lines. What is fresh about? I think it's. What I think it's saying? also challenging for some some of these folks who come out of predominantly Latino enclaves from, say, the Valley or from El Paso or, or wherever else in Texas. Most most cases, the predominantly Latino community. You know, I'm trying to figure out what is their real track record on supporting or or engaging or at least having some discussion about you know the perfect storm. Uh, components that we've addressed. And, you know, thankfully, what I can say about most of the leaders in this region in El Paso is that the students that we serve in El Paso for NHF programming have been able to have a tremendous amount of respect for their elected representatives. And in many cases, many of the elected representatives and their staff have engaged our regional teams. I think that's the case in Brownsville. I think that's the case in the Valley and definitely in, in other parts of Texas. But what I want to make sure is that the recommendations, the opportunity to, to be decision makers, um, you know, that those opportunities are being made available for the next generation of leaders who will follow uh, Valdez, who will follow O'Rourke, and will follow others. And that's where I think our organization and organizations that similarly advocate for young people's future development uh, need to have a voice in, in these campaigns uh, and their platform development, and then ultimately to be able to hold them accountable for delivering on these promises to to predominantly Latino uh, constituencies. So, so, and and our training as as future community leaders, as we work with high school age and or young college students, in your view, take into consideration a lot of the things that we've talked about. What should be the new emphasis or different emphasis as a board member? I think as we a have constituent. Yeah. As a board the, member, uh, as, a, as an alumnus, as a local volunteer, I do believe that we, and this is almost going to sound sacrilegious to some folks uh, of my generation and earlier, I think we need to reconsider our emphasis on describing power as only existing within a political realm or within the Congress or within an elected representative uh, position. And the reason why is that I think we started with this in the in the 80s, and from my understanding of how it functioned in the 90s, we understood or were trained at least to appreciate how power can be effectively uh, executed by uh, coalitions, by caucuses, by key leaders, by collaboration, and so forth, but that we still maintain it within this uh, simulation tied to politics, or at least our, our, our models primarily within the LDZ and, and others. I think we aren't listening to the changes that have happened in how the next generation of NHRs and the future NHRs that will, will come down the road do not recognize uh, the political domain as the space where power is being effectively wielded and that they see power as tied to symbolic power much more uh, combined with uh, communication technology. And so... I think there's there's political figures that stand out in that domain, but they are not how or they are not the individuals that are perceived as as influencers for the next generation of of, of U.S. Latino uh, you know graduates and and hopefully a, a population or at least a base of leaders in the future. So in that so context, we might want to reconsider our leadership training towards other skill sets and others um, you know other simulations beyond that of uh, of trying to replicate you know, a, a mock legislative session. And I'm not knocking the LDZ. Skills aside, I'm though, just saying that, yeah. One thing, you, you know, you you mentioned it earlier and we've talked about at different points is the, the concept of an intelligentsia. And I still don't really yeah. hear that mentioned by other people or other groups or, or just at all. 
What did you mean by that, and why people, was that important? Like, and what it, what's 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 missing in the message? Is, well, I think the term itself, intelligentsia, intelligentsia, which whichever way you want to pronounce it, we used both back in the day, if you recall. It was this. I think when you try to discuss this kind of like intellectual sphere within U.S. Latinos, many populations don't even recognize that it, it can exist. And it's quite dense and it, it's amazingly profound. And it's something that when we bring it up, I do recognize that we probably have not only tremendous representation inside of elected uh, positions throughout the country and in a variety of career fields, but we have great minds that we are connecting throughout the country, in some cases throughout the world, and definitely within their local regions, that are advancing thoughts and ideas and models for collaboration and, and so on, that I think we're one of the few organizations that's trying to push that and keep these relationships alive for many years, in some cases decades, so that these young people can mature into individuals who can grow new ideas that become new institutions and new formations of institutions and and this is where we go back to that larger discussion about NHI is, is, is much more a school of thought than it could be a school. And so when it comes to the intelligentsia, we are a huge contributor to that pool uh, nationally. And I think if we really were to take a step back now that we have, a, you know, we have such a massive alumni base, uh, you probably know the best, Julio, and you probably know the most of them of who this not only was it once described as a nascent intelligentsia, but who this massive and very influential intelligentsia uh, is comprised of. And it's not just higher ed, and it's not just people in industry. It is that we have teenagers and college students who are also part of this larger multi-generational discussion. And that is our strength, and that's one of the things that I think the Institute needs to advance uh, in more formal uh, channels beyond programming. I wanted and to, we I'll, do it informally... I wanted to throw out another thought and just kind of in a question format. Sure. Uh, even after all these years, Joey, I when I read the papers, when I read reports, when I get read posts on Facebook, whenever I talk oh. and whenever I hear about what the Latino community doing and engaged in, for the for the most part, it is in social advocacy and and reform. We're, we're, we're yeah, still engaged. It, it has in, remained that way for 50 years. Yeah, and we're still, our energies, our talent, our passion goes towards that. NHI obviously preaches a different philosophy of community asset development. We call it CEB, right? Community equity building and things of that nature. Mm -hmm. And we, we find it so difficult whenever we ask young people to think about, I'm talking about NHI youth and our summer programs, when we ask mm -hmm. them to think about future policy in the Latino community, they still tend to trend towards correcting, dealing with inequities, dealing with social injustice, yep. and very little thought goes towards the advantages of building wealth, equity in the community, creating literary societies, creating new mm -hmm. literature, where, why do you yeah. think, is that something we're learning in our schools, in our communities? Where, where, where do you think where does this the come reason from? lies? Oftentimes, I think it comes from an inherited system of class reproduction that all ethnic and racial groups in this country are unfortunately uh, and unwittingly uh, advancing. But when it comes to leading in a default mode for advocacy, um, 
I think it's a tendency that's tied to our reverie, uh, how we, at least how we put it this way. I think we've seen advancements in our in our nation's history that was tied to advocacy. It was tied to a variety of different tools for social protest and engagement, and uh, that that are similar to other populations. But I think it's easier to interpret an advocate's strategy than it is for one to understand uh, how to elaborate um, power by perceiving assets within the community that has been described and 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 depicted as problematic and backwards or inefficient or d- stunted. Um, I, I think where our opportunities are is is tied to two terms or at least two phrases that that you you, you just reminded me of. I think what is clear amongst young people is not that they want to become advocates for a traditional cause. I think most young people that I've encountered through the Institute are looking for what you described. And this is the volunteer, the participant, and the employee. Everyone is looking for human purpose and social relevancy. And more often than not, the institutions and the opportunities that are available are tied to a traditional advocacy modality. What NHI provides is is really something very distinct that is trying to build off of a new awareness about what the potential and what the current contemporary state of this community provides and what the global opportunities are available to a young mind or a family or a community that recognizes this opportunity. And often the Institute can create enough a series of experiences that lead to that from a participant level. But what I really think the Institute's the most effective at is creating long-term cultivation of volunteers and that the true participant in NHI is the lifelong volunteer. I was lucky to get to be a volunteer when I was 15 and I still get to have these opportunities at 45. And without that volunteerism, I, I can't grow and I can't learn and I can't appreciate the strengths of others. And so I feel like in learning how to be part of this, um, the technologies that we deal with aren't just game technology. There's a volunteer system. There's this volunteer uh, apparatus that cycles young people through an opportunity to become a junior counselor at a great debate or a board member. And that as long as we have that training system internally, we will produce uh, the mindset, the thought leaders, and the intelligentsia that could influence other sectors. Um, it's one of our greatest assets, and I think we do need to explore it more fully. Um, but it's it's a dimension that I think time and time again, what you see with why volunteers return is that they, through in, uh, through the Institute's um, you know, model, they find relevancy, and they find other people that have a similar purpose and fortunately, this generation is more willing to collaborate than previous generations. Yes. So, and I think when as, we're on the we're on the brink of creating new things as the researcher, or organizations. Yeah. As the researcher, what what are some things that we need to start researching, and perhaps what are some studies you want to start seeing, or, or perhaps participate in, uh, in terms of the community over the next few years? I would like to revisit the perfect storm scenario with, you know, with the original team that started to conceptualize it. I think. Uh, particularly when it came to our discussions, Julio, this is when we developed a, a, a cyclical understanding of the ideology, methodology, application model, where we we have a belief, we, we essentially are testing it out, and how we apply it in game technology or in, in our day-to-day activities should then reinform the ideology, which influences the methodology and application. So, you know, um, 
I, I think we have some internal review and critical discussions we need to have, not just about programming, but about um, the things that this next generation of participants and volunteers thinks are vital and relevant. I think they have a, a lot of, uh, of intriguing uh, capabilities that previous generations didn't have. But on the same side, when it comes to research, I clearly recognize that most participants born after the year 2000 are missing uh, predictable capabilities that their predecessors had. And so being at the ranch in Maxwell, being off the internet, having to build greater social skills in inside of programming and building relationships, there's a area within that that I think we need to explore uh, because many of these young people are becoming isolated through their own technology. Their liberation has been their prison. And the more that they're caught up in a bubble that emphasizes advocacy and problems in this community and mistreatment and brutality and so forth, the less likely this population is ever going to have a competing message regarding, you know, building upon assets, you know, recognizing I'm going, opportunities I'm, I'm to harness going, capital. I'm going you know? to close out this session with this kind of question. I'd like to hear both you and Julio. This year's theme okay. for the great debate for the high school freshmen has to do with social labels, the term disadvantage, the term minority, people of color, and all that. And it created among some of the education directors a certain level of discomfort. And the intent mm -hmm. being that Latinos are always a recipient of someone else's social label or identity labels and therefore, we live the word minority, even the word Latino, the word Hispanic, or the word uh, Latinx, or whatever is contemporary, that we're always the subjects of someone else's interpretation of who we are. Mm -hmm. And yet, when we, are, when we ask the question, how would you like to be viewed in the world? What marketing labels, what, what appeals to you? How would you like to be perceived and seen and uh, interpreted as? That always becomes a real problem. Why do you why do you think we're we're caught up in that reacting the dichotomy of reacting to what we like or don't like, and yet ex experiencing problems and confusion when asked to be the art or the artist of our own identity? Hmm. Uh, I, I actually before I respond, I was hoping Julio could clarify because there's there's a concept that that I've been intrigued about within within this question. Here comes the pause. Yeah, yeah. He's no, no, no. I, it's, <laughs> we, we call it the podcast pause. <laughs> yeah. I, I think that we, it, the, you, someone just said, one of the two of you just said the word predictability. There is a predictability mm -hmm. in the pain. There is a predictability yeah. in 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 keeping the fight, uh, the permanent revolution, you know, um, arms <laughs> yeah. up, soldier up. I mean, all these things yeah. because, and, and I think culturally, you know, we like tradition and history, but there is a real fear to even just put your foot into the darkness of what could be uh, of something else mm. that could be. And um, I think that Latinos or even NHI members have a tough time feeling that they could reinvent themselves or reinvent the community or rebrand it without um, almost like this guilt of abandoning the past or abandoning the pain or abandoning the struggle. There, there's a loyalty in that struggle that is 
is comprehensible and is is some type of competing voice and 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 I see that but um this this discussion about discomfort is something that intrigues me um, I think discomfort is is one of the most useful things you can work with I think setbacks frustrations losses uh epic failures these are the things that i i feel the next generation of leaders needs to be acquainted with um because it's through these efforts to experiment and to break away from the traditional ways of doing things or thinking about this community is is what they need to test out um and so i do that, feel that you're you're yeah. in schools and you're a dad what do you what, yeah. what do you lead, how do you lead in order to to prevent this same cycle from continuing uh, well uh, now that i have a 3 year old and a 5 year old and i'm very involved in education in in the el paso community i i i know that i have a tremendous role i have to play every day in their development along with my wife in trying to make sure that we understand the world that they perceive and that we're also creating a reality that will, that will, you know, it's really a first reality to use the parlance of NHI that is going to really be the foundation of what they will, what we perceive they will need in, 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 in what is ahead. Uh, I think, I think the great thing about being a parent and the great thing about being an older alumnus is that we have each other who we both have daughters that we're going to have to figure this stuff out for and are, you know, for, for everyone else, you know, that's coming down the pipeline within the Institute. I do feel like the exercises that you and I and, and the rest of the Cowboys, uh, Hector and Anako and Nick and uh, Alex, Dominic, and you know, the, the list kind of goes on. Um, what I feel like we need to do is challenge them to come up with their own terminology and their own concepts for things like a confluence of social storms and so forth. And that they have to gain confidence in inventing and testing, and also confidence in removing and divorcing themselves from concepts that are no, that are now anachronistic. So there's a there's a courageous step that many of these people have to take from breaking away from the simulation and leaving the temple and testing out their leadership training and their own concepts and whatever it is they're writing about in, school, in college or or grad school or for their employers that they have to try to apply that in the world around them. Um, my, my hope is that that's what we are compelling uh, the participant at the program and the alumni participant in the world to, to really test out what, what they received all this leadership training for. It wasn't just to get them jobs and get them into college. It was to get them to make a difference within this, this global and local population. And for the little boys and girls that, you know, that NHI tends to produce uh, as a result of its programming and bringing great minds together and, and, and great people from around the country and around the world together is that whatever next generation is coming up, whether it's my son or my daughter or your daughter or Ernie's grandkids or whomever, all of these volunteers are supposed to carry that, that curiosity and that questioning and that, that effort to challenge uh, everyone that's coming, coming ahead to, to really contemplate what do we have to work with. And how can we work better together? I, I feel like, Ernie, if, if you hadn't intervened and if Julio, you hadn't become my friend, right around that same period of time in 2002, I would have just done what everyone else was doing. I would have remained on the same path, and I, and I would have just been carrying on loyally to a struggle that really was non-existent. So, you know, this was a, historically a very liberating 
uh, think, partnership that we have. Yeah, I, but I feel like we have so much work to do. I think this is a great jumping off to say I've enjoyed it. I think I know the listening audience doesn't realize this, but Julio, you and I could probably stay on this conversation for the next 10 hours. And that's the way we've learned from each other. And that's the way we've intellectually and emotionally and psychologically and culturally challenged each other to think differently and to test our own ideas and to be prepared to respond to opposition. But it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Joseph, and you've meant so much to the organization. Um, the CRC will come back one of these days, I hope. And and, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just thought I would remind you of that and that this organization has benefited a lot from your thoughts, a lot from your insight, and a lot for your caring attitude. I wanted to thank you. Thank you for the opportunity to interview you, and I'm sure that the listening audience will enjoy it. We'll see you later. Oh, I appreciate it, Ernie, and I appreciate it, Julio. I love you guys very much, and I'm, and I'm always here to help. Take care. Tercera realidad, mi libertad. Mi tercera realidad no es vanidad. Un mundo mío es mi sueño. Un lugar feliz donde yo soy dueño. Donde yo soy rey el encargado. For more information on the National Hispanic Institute, please visit our website, www.nationalhispanicinstitute.org. Call us at 512-357-6137. Find us on Facebook at NHIHQ or on Twitter, NHI underscore news and at Instagram and Snapchat, NHI underscore news. Thank you to Union Pacific for their generous support as a sponsor of the NHI Podcast Network.